Well, turn in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 20. We're continuing our study in Leviticus to live in the presence of God, and we're in the section of the book that is known as the Holiness Code. It's telling God's people what it looks like to live holy lives in God's presence. Now, normally, we've tackled about a chapter each week, sometimes a little less, and occasionally a bit more. Today, we're going to do three chapters, and we're going to see a perfect standard. So Leviticus 20 through 22. It's a large amount of reading, but it, a lot of it actually covers material that has already been covered in the book to some extent. And some of what we cover today is the more uncomfortable material that we don't like to talk about in public, but God says that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, and the goal of all of that is that we would become mature, ready for good works. Now, the relationship ethics that we'll see today are very unpopular in our culture today. Just as an example of that, Ian McKellen, the actor who plays Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings, says that when he stays in hotels, he tears these pages out of Leviticus in the hotel Bible in his room because he doesn't like the Bible's stance on relationship ethics. But we recognize that this is the truth that God wants us to hear and obey. So as we look at Leviticus 20, you'll actually basically see the same list of rules that we saw in Leviticus 18, sins and crimes, but this time there's penalties added. And so I'm not really going to spend much time on those at all. But what I want to do is before we read this chapter, let me just give you the heads up of what to look for. And I'll explain one or two things about it. So first of all, the chapter seems to be organized in terms of who meets out the punishment. So it begins and ends with things that the people are to punish, and there's a big section in the middle that's the same, and those are separated by two sections where God's the one who's doing the punishing of those sins. Second, though, there's a sense in which this chapter echoes the Ten Commandments, or at least parts of it, by giving specific instances of things that are spoken of more generally in the Ten Commandments. So, for instance, the Ten Commandments begin with, don't have any other gods, and then Later on, we see honor father and mother, and then no adultery. Well, as you go into Leviticus 20, the Israelites are told, don't worship Molech, which is a specific God they're not supposed to worship. And then they're told not to curse their parents, which is a specific way of dishonoring your parents. And then they're told no adultery, and then it goes on from there to talk about a variety of other things kind of beyond adultery, related offenses. So hopefully that gives you some idea of what to expect and how this chapter is a highly organized presentation of relationship ethics. So let's jump in, verses 1 through 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Moloch and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people and all who follow him in whoring after Moloch. So God said that the people were to have no other gods before him. Moloch is not just another god. He's a god who is worshipped by literally offering children in fire. And the language here actually says that those who worship Molech are giving their seed to Molech. So this is actually related to the rest of the 
relationship ethics that we're going to see in the chapter. God says the person who does this should be put to death. And if the people don't do it, God says he himself will set his face against this man. Now it's easy to read this and think, man, how evil and depraved and callous these people are in this culture that they would, have do, th they would do this. But as soon as we think that, we need to remember that since 1973, 62 million babies have been aborted in our country in the name of the God of convenience. We live in a nation that has actually enshrined the breaking of the sixth commandment into law and our government actively protects those who murder these young ones. Verses six through nine. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. So as we've seen before in Leviticus, necromancy and mediums are off-limits. And like in almost every chapter of Leviticus, the central concern here is that the people are to be holy because God is holy. And cursing father or mother carries a very strong penalty. All right, before we hit verses 10 through 16, let me just introduce it this way. What you'll see in these verses is a series of relationships. And as the section goes on, each one gets farther and farther and farther away from the standard. Okay? The standard is marriage as God has designed it. And that means one man and one woman united in the marriage covenant for life. So, so far in the chapter, we've seen children offered to Molech when God's design is that children are to be seen as a blessing in the marriage. We've, saw, we've seen cursing father and mother, which shows disrespect. God's design, though, is that when a marriage begins... A man first obtains the consent of the girl's father before marrying her because that shows respect and honor for parents. And now we get a general statement about adultery, which is the violation of that marriage covenant that God designed. And then that's followed by relationships that are more and more and more deviant from God's design. Okay, so verses 10 through 16. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness, both of them shall be put to death, their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death, they've committed perversion, their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So those last couple of verses, um, there are actually serious academic journals t today decrying speciesism as a false distinction forced on our culture by Western tradition. This is where critical theory is taking us, folks. I read a very disturbing article this week in the Journal of Critical Animal Studies. 
They suggest that any relationship that's appropriate between humans should also be allowed to cross the barriers of species because those distinctions are artificial and oppressive constructs, just like male and female are artificial and oppressive constructs. God says he created mankind, male and female, and he created people and animals, each according to their kinds. All right, verses 17 through 21. This brings us now to the other section in which we're told that God meets out the punishment. And there's six relationships in this section, and they're structured around the verbs. And here's what I mean. You have verse 17 takes, verse 18 lies, verse 20 lies, verse 21 takes. It's like that Oreo cookie structure. And in the middle, we have verse 19 that doesn't have verbs. And we'll talk about why in just a minute. Let's read verses 17 to 21. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father, or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made, her, made naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood, both of them shall be cut off from among their people." You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness, and they shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So why do the relationships in verse 19 not have the verb takes or lies? They also actually don't have a specific visible penalty given. It's probably because they're the difficult cases. They're right on the border of what's appropriate or not. They're on the edge of the kinship family relationships like we've talked about before. So this passage tells us that these relationships are not appropriate, but because they're such kind of borderline issues, no penalty is given specifically. As we move on then to the last section, the chapter finishes with some things that should, by now, sound really familiar to us. So as I read these verses, listen for themes like keeping God's law, the land vomiting out those who reject God's law, not being like the nations around them, God's people's inheritance in the land, being clean instead of unclean, being holy because God is holy. All of these themes that we've seen over and over. Okay, so starting in verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things and therefore I detested them. But I've said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones, their blood shall be upon them. All right, so that's Leviticus 20. Now, as we move into the next section, Leviticus 21 and 22, you're going to start seeing about the holiness of the priests. And as we read this, you'll hear that the priests are not to be defiled by mourning for the dead, because the dead are unclean, or by entering marriages that don't meet God's standard. 
<clears throat> so chapter 21, let's read the first 15 verses. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him because she has had no husband, for, he, for her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to the Lord their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who's been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband. For the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. The priest who is chief among his brothers, and this is talking about the head, the, the high priest, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow, or a divorced woman, or a woman who has been defiled, or a prostitute. These he shall not marry, but he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Okay, so not mourning for the dead, marriage according to God's standard, that's a must for these priests. In the next section, verses 16 to 24, we'll hear that the priests who have a physical defect of some kind may not come into God's presence to make a sacrifice. All right, so verse 16. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man or blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles." No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest, who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. So why does God give these restrictions? <clears throat> it seems kind of unfair, doesn't it? Remember, though, that these laws and statutes are pictures. They tell us something about God and about how we relate to him. And Leviticus has told us over and over and over that God is holy. He does not tolerate sin. <clears throat> and the physical defects that are in view here are a picture of falling short of perfection, falling short of the standard. God's standard is perfection. Sin is falling short of the standard, missing the mark. 
And if you miss the mark, you can't come into God's presence. That leaves every one of us with a problem. Because every one of us misses the mark. Every one of us has spiritual defects. We're not perfect. We do things that are wrong. And that means we can't come into God's presence. People think they can be good enough to please God. They often think God will accept them because they're better than most people or they've done more good than bad. You know, I, I may not be Mother Teresa, but I'm certainly no Hitler. The problem with that kind of thinking is you're using the wrong standard to measure by. God doesn't measure us against other people. His standard is himself, his own perfection. And none of us measure up, so none of us can come into his presence. So this rule for the priest points to our predicament. We aren't good enough to come into God's presence. And specifically here, it's the one who comes in to offer the sacrifice must be without defect. Even if we had an offering that we could pay for our sins, we ourselves would already have to be perfect in order to bring the offering into his presence in order to offer it. That's why what Jesus did is so important for us. He's the perfect and sinless son of God who came to earth as a man. He was totally without defect. No fault. No missing God's standard in any way. In his death on the cross, as a sacrifice for our sins, Jesus provides a perfect sacrifice. But not only that, he's also a perfect high priest. So he not only provides the sacrifice, he's also the priest who brings that sacrifice into God's presence for us. He represents us before God. And God tells us then that if we have faith in Jesus, trusting him for what he did on our behalf, then his righteousness stands in our place. He is perfect and without blemish for us. As we move on then to chapter 22, we'll start with verses 1 through 9. We're going to see the cleanness that is necessary to partake of the holy things. So in this section, verses 1 through 9, we see that the priests must be ceremonially clean in order to eat the sacrifices. So remember two things here. First, certain sacrifices were given to the priests or the citizens to go ahead and eat. And then second, remember that being clean is not the same thing as not having sin. Being clean is a ceremonial category. There were things that made you unclean, but the things aren't sinful. So when someone's unclean, that doesn't mean that they sinned. All right, let's read verses 1 through 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, if any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead 
or a man who has had an emission of semen, and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean, or a person from whom he may take uncleanness. Whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening, and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. He shall not eat of what dies of itself, or is torn of beasts, and so make himself unclean by it, I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it, and die thereby when they profane it, I am the Lord who sanctifies them. All right, we're going to look now at verses 10 through 16, and this section is a lot like the last one, but instead of the priests, sometimes it's dealing with the priest's family, or others who are normal citizens. So now verses 10 through 16. A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired servant shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house, as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food. Yet no layperson shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy things to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So the main idea here is that if you want to partake of the holy food, you must meet God's standard of cleanness, and only those that God permits may do so. All right, then verses 17 through 30 are going to be talking about acceptable offerings. Now, we read earlier that the priests who offer sacrifices must not have any blemishes or defects. Now, in this section, we'll see the same thing about the offering itself. The animal being offered must not have any blemishes or defects because it should represent God's standard of perfection or holiness. So verse 17, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a freewill offering, but for a vow offering, it cannot be accepted. Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord, and you shall not do it within your land. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner. Since there's a blemish in them because of their mutilation, they will not be accepted for you. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day, and you shall leave none of it till morning. I am the Lord. <clears throat> okay. Now, as we come to a close in this chapter, I want just you to look at the last couple of verses. God's people have been rescued and redeemed by him, and they are now to be like him, not like the other nations. He's holy. They're to be holy like him. And the way you see this in their lives is that they obey his law. So let's look at these last couple of verses, starting in verse 31. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. <clears throat> now, before we move on, please notice one thing. God calls his people to be holy. That means following his laws. But what is the motive for them to do this? Look at the very end. I am the Lord who sanctifies you or makes you holy who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. God rescued and redeemed them from Egypt, and now they belong to him. In gratitude for being redeemed, they are to obey his laws and be holy like him. That's a picture for us. If you are a believer, you've been redeemed from sin by Jesus. In gratitude for being redeemed, we are to obey God's laws and be holy like him. So, <clears throat> redemption is the motivation for sanctification. Okay, now, take a deep breath. That was a lot of reading. It's not the reading that you'd necessarily just sit down and choose to read. But now that we've gone through those three chapters, what I want to do is this. I want us to see how the principles that we've seen in these chapters of Leviticus still have great relevance for us today. I'm going to put four words up on the screen that I want you to remember and think about. But first, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Okay? We're going to focus on one particular relationship, and it's the relationship that really is centrally in view in the chapters in Leviticus that we read. Okay? Because everything that we read, all those laws, are measuring against the perfect standard of marriage as God has designed it. <clears throat> okay? So turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And let me just give you, if you're in there in Ephesians 5, I'm going to give you the four words that we've seen in Leviticus 20 to 22 that I want you to keep in mind. Okay, the first one is this. Redemption. God says over and over that he brought them out of Egypt. Therefore, they're to be holy as he is holy. The second word is distinction between men and women. Okay, God's design for marriage is one man and one woman. Third, <clears throat> we've seen the importance of sanctification, being holy. The priests and the sacrifices are to be without blemish, pure and undefiled. And finally, 
we've seen that our motivation for holiness is that we're responding to what God has done for us. He's redeemed us, therefore we are to be his holy people. Now, when you get to the New Testament, the one place that, I'm, that, that came to my mind where all of these ideas come together is in the New Testament teaching on marriage. You're in Ephesians 5. We're going to start in verse 22. Okay, verse 22. Since we have read some very unpopular sections of Leviticus, why not read one of the very unpopular sections of the New Testament as well this morning? So Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, so here we have the currently very unpopular idea that wives are to submit to their husbands. This is God's design for marriage. It doesn't mean that wives are less valuable or less capable. It means that God has designed husbands and wives to take on particular God-designed roles in the marriage. And it also tells us that when wives do this, they are picturing how the church submits to the leadership of Christ. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here, Husbands are told to love their wives self-sacrificially in the same way that Jesus gave himself up for his bride, the church. And the goal of his leadership is that she increasingly becomes sanctified or holy. And let's also just note something practical here. When the wife submits to the leadership of her husband, it's much easier for the husband to lead. And when the husband leads in a self-sacrificial way for her good, it's much easier for the wife to submit to his leadership. Now, skip down to verses 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis 2. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So in verse 31... We have God's standard for marriage, one man and one woman united in marriage. And verse 32 tells us that God has designed the mystery of marriage to be a picture for us of how Christ loves the church and how the church follows Christ. So please understand, this is how God designed marriage. Think of it this way, through the storyline of the Bible, there's a marriage that begins the story of the human race in the Garden of Eden. Then when we have the story of Israel, Israel is constantly over and over likened to be the bride or the wife of God, even though Israel is unfaithful to that covenant. When Jesus comes, he compares himself to the bridegroom and the church is his bride. And when you get to the very end of the story, we finish with the marriage supper of the Lamb, with Christ and his bride united for all eternity. 
I put these four words up on the screen, and I want to just show you how each of these is present here in Paul's teaching on marriage. So first of all, redemption. Verse 25 tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In his death on the cross, Jesus redeemed his people. They've been brought out of the domain of sin and death. They've been given freedom and life. The sin penalty that we were under has been paid by Christ. And verse 31 tells us that God's design for marriage is that a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife. They become one flesh. They're united to each other. Well, when Christ redeems you, the Bible says you're brought into union with Christ. What is true of him is now true of you because you've become one. So when God looks at you, he no longer sees a sinner who doesn't measure up to his standard. He sees Christ and his perfect righteousness, his without blemishness. So marriage pictures Christ redeeming his people. And it follows then, since this picture is so integral to all of scripture, that any attempt to undermine the biblical ideal of marriage is really ultimately an attempt to undermine the gospel story itself. And that leads us to the next word where I want to spend a little bit more time. Leviticus tells us there's a distinction between men and women. God's design for marriage is one man and one woman. So homosexual and lesbian relationships are not God's design. They violate his standard. There's a distinction between a man and a woman. In Ephesians 5, we see that God's designed different roles for husbands and wives. The marriage relationship is designed for two different, distinct kinds of people to come together in unity. Husbands and wives are different because men and women are different. This goes all the way back to creation where God made mankind male and female in the Garden of Eden. And the words here in Ephesians 5 that are translated as wives and husbands, they're not like our English word that specifically just speaks of the role in marriage. The Greek word is the generic word for woman or man. It indicates a biological difference. And the word is also used of the marriage roles of wives and husbands because those roles are inseparable from biological gender or biological sex, male and female. Now, our culture is very confused about this. And we're even confused at the level of words themselves. Let me explain for just a minute what's going on in our culture. The gender craziness that we're experiencing began a long time ago in academic circles. So forgive me, this morning, if I give you just a couple of academic quotes this morning, and the reason I'm doing it is it's important for you to understand that what is happening in our culture is being done intentionally. This is theory being put into practice. And I'm just going to highlight two fairly recent scholars who were writing about these things in the 1990s and before. Judith Butler, who's 
still alive and writing, and Monique Wittig, who passed away a while ago. Both of them are radical feminist scholars. So in her book, Gender Trouble, Feminism and the Subversion of Identity, Judith Butler is interacting with the writings of Monique Wittig. Wittig suggests that the traditional idea of sex as a biological identity, male or female, is really not a natural distinction, but instead it's an idea forced on us through gender language. Those who hold the traditional idea are maintaining their power in culture by using the language and getting everyone else to use it too. So she writes this. We are compelled, forced, in our bodies and our minds to correspond feature by feature with the idea of nature that has been established for us. And she goes on to say, men and women are political categories, not natural facts. And she even goes so far as to say that the very categories of sex, meaning male or female, are categories that enslave. So when you use the language of male or female, you are enslaving the people who are under that. So it follows then, if this language is oppressive, as she says, that the language should be changed. And so Wittig suggests that people should refuse to use the language at all. Because if you do use it, you're just validating the oppressive system. So Judith Butler, in her book, explaining Wittig's idea, writes this. The political task she formulates is to overthrow the entire discourse on sex, meaning male and female. Indeed, to overthrow the very grammar that institutes gender as an essential attribute of humans. Do you see how they're going right to the language? The language needs to be changed because the language is oppressive. Words have power. And the words of the Christian worldview, God made them male and female, one husband, one wife, are an oppressive language regime, she says from which we all need to be liberated. Okay, so let me show you one more thing. Judith Butler writes this then. If they could accomplish this, what would be the result? She writes, the loss of gender norms, in other words, if we can get rid of these traditional ideas of male and female, the loss of gender norms would have the effect of, and she's gonna give three things, and they're all big words, but don't get bogged down in it, I'll just talk you through them. Proliferating gender configurations, okay, proliferating means multiplying more and more of something. Gender configurations, what was the last count of the different gender configurations that Facebook allows you to identify as? This is 1990, she's writing. They've done it. This, this is what they've intentionally done, undermine the language. Okay, so that's number one. It would also have the effect of destabilizing substantive identity. So we no longer identify as simply male or female. There's all kinds of other identities out there, which means nobody knows what they are. Talk to counselors. They're dealing today with massive numbers of people who have identity crisis. And third, hold on to your seatbelt. 
depriving the naturalizing narratives of compulsive, excuse me, compulsory, compulsory heterosexuality of their central protagonists, man and woman. What does that mean? Okay, naturalizing narratives, that just means the stories we tell or the words we use that, that naturalize or that, that make things normal. So the, the Western tradition that says God created them male and female, for instance. Compulsory heterosexuality. That means you must be either male or female. And the protagonist, the central protagonist of that storyline is man and woman. So what do they want to do? They want to deprive the story of the very idea of man and woman altogether in order to overthrow that worldview. It's right at the level of language. So ultimately, as a culture, what we're doing is we don't know what a man is anymore. We don't know what a woman is. We don't know what restroom or locker room we're supposed to use or what sport we're supposed to sign up for. As a culture, we're rejecting the distinctions that God has made. It's mankind wanting to be like God. They, they're, what they're saying is they take a human body. When, when the human body comes into existence, when someone is born, it's a nothing. It's not male or female, they say. It's not anything until you impose your desires and your identity on it. And then you are what you want to be. So we overlay it with our chosen identity and our desires and we use words, the proliferation of gender configurations, to create our own identity. Let there be queer. It's an imitation and mockery of God's creation of male and female. Now you might be tempted to think, yeah, but that's just the academy. That's really far out stuff. People won't actually buy into it. Let me just give you a quick snapshot of a couple things from very recent history here. Number one, Richard Dawkins is a leading atheist. He's regularly seen mocking and ridiculing the Christian faith. Well, recently he tweeted this. His tweet says, in 2015, Rachel Dolezal, a white chapter president of the NAACP, was vilified for identifying as black, in other words, when she was really white. <clears throat> some men choose to identify as women, and some women choose to identify as men. You will be vilified if you deny that they literally are what they identify as. Discuss. Atheist groups and trans groups attacked Dawkins. And the American Humanist Association, and this is just a month ago, a couple weeks ago that he said this. The American Humanist Association rescinded an award that they had given him back in 1996 in protest. See, language is important. And if you suggest that there is only male and female, you will be attacked. Second example. A popular tool being used to educate children regarding these issues today is the gender unicorn. This breaks out five different aspects of gender and tells kids that they can all be different, all five aspects. In other words, they're not related to each other. Each one can be also on a spectrum. So you see the spectrum here. So gender identity, gender expression, sex assigned at birth, physically attracted to, emotionally attracted to, all of those different things, you can be any combination of those and you can be at any point you want on any one of those spectrums. That's a radical subversion of the distinctions that God has created. 
And you and I as parents need to be aware of how the culture around you is communicating ideas like this to your children. Third example, what are your pronouns? If you're on social media, do you have your pronouns listed? Do you think that if you put he, him, or she, her, you're taking some sort of stand for biblical ideals? You're not. If you choose to list your pronouns, what you are doing is you're participating in that subversive language that's being used to overthrow biblical ideals. Listing your pronouns means that you're recognizing the validity of this system that suggests you can choose your own identity. Don't do it. Refuse to participate in a system that is attempting to undermine the distinctions that God has created. God's design is that men and women are distinct. Husbands and wives have distinct roles. And these distinctions are designed to show in the picture of marriage how God's people are united with Christ as two distinct and different partners become one. Much more briefly than the last two. Sanctification. In verses 25 to 27 in Ephesians 5, we see that Christ sanctifies his people by the word, by the word of God. That's the end of verse 26. With the goal that they will be without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. In Leviticus, the priest and the sacrifice were both to be without blemish, without defect. Jesus, who is without blemish, without defect, is our great The sacrificial redemption that Jesus accomplished for us is our motivation to live holy lives, to live according to God's standard. So husbands, if you're waiting for your wives to be perfect before you lead them, it'll never happen. Wives, if you're waiting for your husband to be perfect before you follow, it'll never happen. That's why you're to submit as to the Lord. What the Lord has done is the motivation. When you struggle to live according to God's standard, look to Jesus. What he has done is the motivation for what God calls you to do. And when we live in that way, then our marriages function as pictures of Christ and the church. It's the holiness code of Leviticus lived out in the relationship of marriage as God designed. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand your holiness and how it impacts our lives. That what you called your people to in the Old Testament, some of it comes over directly as still required for us, but even the parts that are just pictures really do help us understand how we are to live in the presence of God. How we are to live, for instance, this morning as we saw, as husbands and wives in the presence of God. We pray that you would give us the determination and the courage to do so in a culture that increasingly sees a Christian marriage as out of step, as even crazy. I pray that we would choose to honor you and to see you as holy. And because we see that, that we too would seek to live 
holy lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name.